Well, before we get into today's lesson, I got a few things I'd like to share with you. Um, there's a family that comes to Book of Life whenever they're in town. They're from Douglas. And uh, they told me that their pastor from Douglas, who's only 30-some-odd years old, I think 38, had a stroke. So he's brought up to the hospital, and in checking him out, they found all sorts of horrible things wrong with him. So how about this church? Praise for that pastor this morning. What is his name? Let's pray for Pastor Mike. Okay, would you please join me? Father, thank you so much for Pastor Mike and his ministry. Um, we know that all things work together for good, so we're not concerned with that this morning. But we are concerned with Mike's health and his, his comfort and his blessings. So we pray that you would bless him, give him great care, heal him, and use him as a pastor even while he's there in the hospital. And may we see your work in his life and in his church. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just a couple more little tidbits before we get going here. Um, let's see, the seniors are meeting Tuesday at 11 a.m. for potluck, 55 and older, thanks. You're welcome. So, if you're a senior and you didn't know things were kicking off again, there they are. Now, some of you are like, oh, I'm young, I'm never going to be a senior. Well, you got two options. You either will or you won't. <laughs> so, uh... Think about our seniors. Pray for our seniors. And I want to ask you to do one more thing. Look at your pew and see if there's room for another person in your pew. And then look over to the empty pews off on the sides. Why isn't somebody sitting in that pew? Because I know there's somebody out there who needs to be sitting in that pew. There are people out there without Jesus. They don't realize what he can do for them. So how about you pray for them? We don't know who they are, but God does. So pray that God will take that person, bring them into this church, and put them in that pew. Maybe, maybe you're going to claim this pew right here. Maybe this will be your pew. And maybe every Sunday for the next year, you will pray that God fills this pew. And maybe in a few weeks, somebody's going to come sit in that pew, and they're not going to know they're there because you prayed for them. And you're just going to smile. And then you're going to pray that God would bless them and keep them and help them grow. And then you're going to move up a pew because this one's already been answered. And you're going to claim this pew. We're praying for souls. I just want to encourage you to do that. And then one more thing. I made these myself. You may not think that's so impressive, but I made the knot and everything <laughs> without consulting the app for that. <laughs> we'll talk about those shortly. Uh, hopefully I put them in a place where I'm not going to trip over them much. There we go. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, we've been going pretty much chapter by chapter, uh, but today we're in chapters 17 through 24. All right, if you remember, 17 was last week, David killed Goliath. And he almost single-handedly won the entire victory because the whole army fled, army went after them, and everybody was so happy for David. David became everybody's hero. And then in the next chapter, in verses 18 through 23, something happens. Because David killed Goliath and was credited with the victory, the ladies came out singing and dancing. Saul has slain his thousands. 
and David his tens of thousands. Well, when Saul heard that, David got more praise than he did. He went ballistic. He went from loving David to hating David. Hating is not even a strong enough word because in chapters 18 through 23, he tries to kill David no less than 12 times. In fact, the last time it's mentioned, it says Saul just kept on trying to kill him. So it talked about 11 separate times. And then on the 12th time, it says he just kept trying to kill him. And David was constantly running for his life, hiding here, hiding there. Saul's son Jonathan was warning David because they were friends. My dad's coming to get you. Well, when Saul heard about this, he tried to kill his own son Jonathan. This guy was nuts. Poor David running for his life. So Saul's hunting him. They're hiding. David finds this cave to hide in with some of his men because a bunch of men had gathered around him. And Saul and his men are in the area. So they figured they'd be safe in the cave. Well, Saul finds the cave and he says, you guys stay out here. I got to go relieve myself. So he goes into the cave to take care of his personal business, not knowing David and his guys are hiding in the back of the cave. So when they see Saul come in alone, they figured this is it. This is the perfect opportunity. The men said to David, this is the day. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David took out his, his knife, maybe even his sword. Swords in those days looked something like this. This was one of last year's Awana swords that one of the kids made. I can imagine Saul sitting in there. Did you hear that? David creeps forward, blade out, unnoticed, and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And he goes back to the guys. I can imagine the guys are like, and he said to them, it says he was conscience stricken for having cut off his robe. And then the guys are like looking at him and David says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to lift up my hand against the one God has chosen. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Saul left the cave and he went his way. You know, had I been in the cave, Saul would have come out dead that day. That's it. It wasn't even worth thinking about. I'd have killed him. Guy tried to kill me a dozen times, you're toast. But David doesn't do that. And I'm trying to understand what's in David's head. Why the guys didn't get it either. Well, we saw last week that David's perspective on the world was different than everybody else's. Everybody was scared to death of Goliath, but David didn't see a problem at all. So what was David seeing here that I didn't see? It didn't take long to figure it out looking at his words. Here's what David was thinking. This is why he wouldn't kill Saul. God chose Saul. God made Saul king. God appointed me subservient to Saul, and I'm not taking him out. If God wants Saul out, God can take him out. I, I'm not lifting up my hand against somebody God has picked. Let God unpick him. But it's not for me to do. David was a man of God. He knew the Bible well. 
He lived the Bible well. And I have no doubt that this passage of Scripture was in his mind. Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbors yourself. I am the Lord. Don't bear grudge, don't seek revenge, but rather love. Well, when the Scripture does that, puts grudges and revenges here, puts love over here, it's saying it's the opposite of love. Do you realize that grudge-bearing is the opposite of love? So in modern English, let's just say, if we bear grudges, we are hating people. We never thought of it that way because we feel justified in the grudge. They wronged me. The fact that I'm mad at them serves them right. Well, and I'm sure it really gets to them too, right there. They know you can't sleep at night and that your meals don't taste as good and that you're miserable and stressed. I'm sure that's really making them miserable. Let me tell you something about grudges. They don't help anybody. If you bear a grudge, and we'll call this a grudge, who's it hurting? The guy that wronged you? No, it's hurting you. Now let me tell you something. After a while, taking on some grudges could be uncomfortable, to say the least. By the way, I know you don't know how much these weights weigh, but just imagine me wearing a gallon of milk around my neck right now. After a while, how long could you go around wearing a gallon of milk around your neck? After a while, you're going to be like this. But if you refused to let it go, everything's going to get skewed in your life, right? That's what a grudge is. You're the one who puts it on, and you're the only one who can take it off. But they did this to me, and they did that to me. Good, make yourself miserable over it. That'll help. See, grudges don't do any good. But I deserve it. Yes, you do. Put it on. Bear that grudge. I know grudges are hard to let go. The only thing harder than letting go of a grudge is bearing one. This is what David said. May the Lord, may he be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me out of your hand. David was a good guy. But David knew revenge was God's business, not his. Humans are not supposed to be in the revenge business. That's God's business. So David backed off. Let God be God, and I'll do whatever he wants me to do. Listen to what um, Jesus' disciple Peter said about Jesus and revenge. Listen. Speaking of Christ when he was being abused, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. See, David knew he was being mistreated by Saul. He knew it was immoral, it was illegal, it was bad. Saul was trying to murder an innocent man. And not just an innocent man, a hero. And David knew it. Jesus knew he was being mistreated. What did David do about it? He entrusted it to God. What did Jesus do about it? He entrusted it to God. When I asked you what did David do about it, if your thought was nothing, you're wrong. It's not that he did nothing. 
he entrusted it to God. That is not nothing. That is a big something. Jesus was the same. They knew they were being abused. I told you vengeance is God's business. It's not that vengeance won't happen. It will happen. It's just not for us to do. It's for God to do. Listen to what the Bible says for us to do. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace or be at peace with everybody. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So you got two things in this world. You got good and you got evil, right? Good and evil, good and evil. God says evil and good are not the same. You can overcome evil with good. Your job is to be so good that you destroy evil. This passage of Scripture gives us some ways to do that. In fact, there were five mentioned in there. I don't know if you caught them. Avoid arrogance, do right, don't avenge yourself, treat your enemies well, overcome evil with good. Here, avoid arrogance, verse 16. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. There's a couple things in there. First of all, don't be proud. I think when we hold a grudge, it's because of our arrogance. We know we're right, and all the world should know we're right, and it better be made right if I'm going to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? It's all attitude is what it is. Only pride people believe they deserve something. Proud people believe they deserve something. A humble person doesn't believe they deserve anything. It'd be nice if it was made right. That's for sure. But do I deserve that it be made right? The whole world should stop and get fixed for me? That's kind of what we're saying. We don't think of it that way, but we are. And I think most of us struggle with pride. No, I take that back. All of us struggle with pride. No, I take that back. All of us have pride. Some of us struggle with it. <laughs> so how do we overcome pride? I don't know. But I can give you some steps. And one is listed right there. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Now, in the culture in the, which this was written, that was a much huger statement than it is in our culture. But still, even in our culture, we have a tendency to be a little snobbish. I must admit, I'm more of a Target person than a Walmart person. <laughs> Snobs of America unite! But if I want to be biblical, I better be willing to be with Walmart people too. And I got to admit, Fuddruckers makes a pretty good burger. But my wife likes Burger King. I don't know what's wrong with her. <laughs> but I'm willing to associate. So that's in a funny way. But what about in a serious way? Maybe you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company 
could you be friends with the janitor? Why not? Why not? Well, we don't have anything in common. How do you know? You're not his friend. See what kind of burgers he likes. Might actually like the same sports team you like. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Avoid arrogance. Uh, number two says do right. And it doesn't just say do right. And it doesn't just say do what is right. It says be careful to do what is right. Be careful means pay attention to it. It's kind of like slippery when wet. When you walk through that area, you're, you're not just walking, you're paying attention to what you're doing. Messing with electricity is not for a tired man or an inexperienced man. Because if you're not careful, you will get fried. Airplane mechanics, airplane pilots. A pilot will not just jump into a plane and start it. If it's a big plane, he can suck somebody into the engine and spit them out in pieces. If it's a small plane, the prop can still kill somebody. They've got these safety and cautious procedures they go through. Small plane, open the window. Clear left! Start the left engine. Be careful. So this says, do what's right, but pay attention to what you're doing. Try to always do what's right. Be careful to do right. Number three, don't avenge yourself. It's in verse 17 and 19. It's twice. It says, don't repay anyone for evil for evil, and don't take revenge. Number four, treat your enemies well. Wouldn't it be nice if that verse wasn't in there? But it is in there. Treat your enemies well. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Well, that's easy because in our culture, there's water everywhere. We don't have to worry about it. Hey, go to 7-Eleven. They'll give you a cup. So how do we translate that into our culture? I don't know. Let's say you've had this feud going on with your neighbor because they like to turn their music on loud every night till 3 in the morning. And you've gone three years without a good night's sleep, and you're just about ready to throttle this neighbor. And then you find out that your neighbor lost his job, and he hasn't had a good meal in three days. Bring him one. You know what's likely to happen? This isn't why you do it. But your neighbor's likely to say, man, wow, thanks. And you know, I'm sorry about playing my music till 3 in the morning. I've been a real idiot. I'll stop. You know, you treat somebody with love and dignity and respect, they treat you back oftentimes with love and dignity and respect. And if they don't, that's their problem, not yours. Sleep in your closet. It's quieter. <laughs> treat your enemies well. By the way, I was really mad at my neighbors until I started sleeping in the closet. Now I don't, I'm not mad at them at all anymore. I sleep fine. You shouldn't have to sleep in your closet. You're right. I shouldn't. It's darker. It's quieter. Maybe I should send them a thank you note. I get better sleep in there. You know? Number five, overcome evil with good. Verse 21. All right. So... If we're supposed to treat our enemies well, and it's quite obvious from that passage of Scripture we are, then why does it throw in that phrase, and in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their heads? It seems like the whole point is not to do that. What does that mean, heap burning coals on somebody's head? That can't be good, can it? And so I consulted all these commentaries, and one thing I think is pretty clear 
from all the commentaries I consulted, they all agree it's a figure of speech, and none of them seem certain as to what it means. Now, they may think they're certain as to what it means, but the other commentator says it means something else, and they seem pretty certain about what it means, too. So I'm pretty certain they're not certain about what it means. So we break it down. It's either something good or something bad, right? The bad part's easy to understand. They're treating you bad, you treat them nice, it puts burning coals on their head. How does that work out to bad? Well, looking at the context, one possible interpretation is you're giving them every opportunity to do good, and if they don't, it's just going to come down on them on Judgment Day. Does that put a smile on your face? It shouldn't. probably does, but it shouldn't. The other interpretation is a positive slant. Let me read to you from, a, from an article I read on it. It says this. In the Bible lands, almost everything is carried on the head. Water jars, baskets of fruits, vegetables, fish, or any other article. Those carrying the burden rarely touch it with the hands. They walk through crowded streets and lanes with perfect ease. In many homes, the only fire they had was kept in a brazier, which they used for simple cooking as well as for warmth. They planned to always keep it burning. But if it should go out, some member of the family will take the brazier to a neighbor's house to borrow fire. Then she'll lift the brazier to her head and start for home. If her neighbor is a generous woman, she'll, keep the she'll heap the brazier full of coals. To feed an enemy and give him drink was like heaping the empty brazier with live coals, which meant food, warmth, and almost life itself to a person or home needing it. It was a symbol of the finest generosity. Wow. The only problem I had with that is they didn't reference any books or archaeological things to help me know that what they said was right. And they said in Bible lands, people carry stuff on their heads. I don't know that that's right either. I know they do that in Africa, but I don't know that they did that much in ancient Israel. But maybe they did. So it's either positive or negative. I'm not sure. Both ways actually do make sense, because as I'm going to share with you shortly, and as I've already alluded to once, vengeance doesn't go away. Vengeance is God's. It's deferred. The Bible says this for us, though. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I told you I consulted many commentaries. One gave a medieval rabbi's interpretation. And I figured, well, he's getting closer to the original. Maybe he's got some cultural understanding. He says, when you do this good to somebody, and it's like burning, uh, heaping burning coals on their head, it says, when he remembers the food and drink you've given him, you shall burn him, as if you put coals on his head to burn him, and he will be careful of doing you any wrong. In other words, this rabbi is kind of like saying you're overcoming evil with good because you're going to do something good to them, and they're not going to want to treat you wrong again. He's basically saying you overcome evil with good. I guess it burns or stings your conscience. That might be a way of saying it. Jesus said this, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Because I'm telling you, what are our other options? If we don't forgive those who wrong us and pray for them, what is the other option? This. This doesn't hurt them. This hurts you. So go with the Jesus option. It's a better option 
and get rid of these. Let me give you an example of how grudges only hurt the people who hold them. Got a video for you. Before the century turned, the most notorious family feud in American history would send images of violent, backward mountain men roaring across the newspaper headlines of America. The famous feud took place in the remote valley of the Tug River, which divided Kentucky from the newly formed state of West Virginia. On the West Virginia side of the river lived a family named Hatfield, across from a Kentucky family named McCoy. The Hatfield-McCoy feud really wasn't a feud, it was simply a conflict. It had much more to do with the uh, political and economic changes that were occurring in central Appalachia at that time than it had to do with the folk culture of the region or any of the traditional stories associated with it. The family patriarchs were Randolph McCoy, known as Old Rannell, and Anderson Hatfield. Anderson Hatfield was a man born to star in his own drama. In the Civil War, he had led a group of Confederate guerrillas known as the Logan Wildcats. He was tall and imposing, with looks that earned him the nickname Devil Ants. He did things like go out and get bear cubs and tame them and have them as domestic pets, and uh, he was always known as the best shot in the valley. Hatfield built the most successful timber business in the Tug Valley. McCoy was not as fortunate and bristled for years as his competitor thrived. Then in 1872, Devil Ants won a lawsuit over 5,000 acres of land that belonged to Rannell's cousin, Perry Klein. McCoy was outraged and concluded that Hatfield was a thief, even though the land had been legally won. Klein and the McCoys vowed revenge for the lawsuit. Resentments grew over everything from property to politics. But the outright battles began at an election day celebration in 1882 with an attack on Devil Ance's younger brother, Ellison. Three McCoy brothers got drunk and picked a fight with Ellison Hatfield. They stabbed him. He was a very powerful man. They stabbed him several times. It didn't do any good, so they shot him in the back. And he lingered for three days. Dead Lance said, well, if he dies, I'll kill the McCoy boys. And he kept him in a home over on the West Virginia side up in the hollow there. And they came to him and they said, he's dead. And then Devil Lance sent his people. They went over and they took the McCoy boys and they wrapped them around a pawpaw bush and they killed them. In September of that year, the Kentucky court issued murder indictments for Devil Lance and 20 of his supporters. No arrests were actually made and things calmed down for a while. But five years later, the feud exploded again. So we have to wonder what happened in those five years. Well, what happened was the state of Kentucky discovered it had very rich coal resources in the Tug Valley, and it wanted to develop those resources. McCoy's cousin, Perry Klein, was now a lawyer in Pikeville, Kentucky, and still furious over losing his land to Devil Ants. 
1887, he convinced the governor to enforce the old indictments against the Hatfields and to extradite them for trial in Kentucky. This time, the Hatfields could not escape the law. Seven of them went to the Kentucky Penitentiary. But somebody had to pay more dearly for the bloody attack, and that was Ellison Mounts, a nephew of Devil Ants. Poor Ellison Mounts, who was probably retarded, he was known as dim-witted or slow in the valley, ended up being the scapegoat, you might say. In February 1890, Ellison Mounts went to the scaffold. The feud was over. It had lasted more than a decade, and it left 12 people dead. There are some people that say, well, who won the feud? No one won the feud. The McCoys lost the most. But the Hatfields would be the first to tell you we didn't win. We didn't win anything. That's what I'm talking about. So who wins? Nobody wins. They went from being upset about lost property to several murders, 10 years of feuding, and prison time. Who won? I don't know who was in the right in the lawsuit, but I have a tendency to side with the law, so I'm just going to assume the law did the right thing and gave the land to the right guy. I don't know. But after you've appealed to the courts, and they still don't treat you right, just pray to God and give it up. Let God deal with it. Allowing God to handle justice avoids further pain. You know, these are big things, death, murder, property, but sometimes we get real petty with our grudges. She didn't invite me to her birthday party, so I'm not going to invite her to mine. Oh, uh, yeah, you do that. What is that? That's, that's a grudge, and it's petty vengeance. I'm thinking, how about you invite her to the birthday party because she didn't invite you to yours? I mean, we invite people to our parties for one of two reasons. The typical reason, we like them and want them to be there. And the second reason is the biblical reason. Jesus said, invite people to your parties who can't possibly pay you back because some people would throw parties so that they can come to their parties. Jesus said, when you have your parties, invite people that don't throw parties. So it's not for you. So you invite them to your party. So what they didn't invite you to their last three birthday parties? They keep coming to yours. They must like yours. God bless them. Invite them. It's just not worth it to not. But sometimes there's big things at stake. And allowing God to handle the justice is the only way that we humans can survive and live in harmony. And please don't misunderstand me. Justice will be done. Sometimes it's deferred to years down the road. Sometimes it may be the afterlife. I don't know. But I'm not saying bypass the courts. If somebody wrongs you in a real big way, we have laws for that. Go to the courts. Plead your case. If you win, you win. If you lose, praise God, pass the butter. You know, it's in his hands is what I'm saying. After that, you're done. There's nothing else you can do about it. 
But God promises he'll see to it that justice is ultimately done. Um, we haven't gotten there yet. It's like within the next couple of chapters. David has fled from Saul. He's running away from him. Saul keeps trying to kill him. David hangs out by Mount Carmel. And he, gar- he guards this... Sh- now, he's got like 400 guys with him. He guards the sheep of this rancher because his men are hiding out in the hills. The sheep are there, so he makes sure that the sheep are safe. Come sheep shearing day, big festival, big work day, David sends some men for some food from the festival. Hey, man, we've been taking care of your sheep all year. Can you help us out with a little bit of food? And the guy puts David's men down, shames them, and sends them home. David says, grab your swords. We're going to go kill every male in the family. So they grab their swords, they saddle up, and they're going to go kill Nabal's entire clan. Every man, every child. In the meantime, this idiot's wife hears about this. His name is Nabal, which means idiot, literally in Hebrew. His wife's name is Abigail. She hears about this, she gathers up a bunch of food, and she rushes out to meet David. Finds him on his way to the household. She throws herself down before his horse, says, please don't. If you're angry with my stupid husband, because that's what his name means, take it out on me. I've brought you some food. We know you've been good to us. He's just an idiot. Please overlook it. David said, you know what? You just saved your husband's life. I was going to kill all you people. You have kept me from taking vengeance. God bless you. She kept David from sinning. By the way, this man ended up dropping dead over fear of what almost happened to him, and David married his wife. (laughs) Pretty cool story. (laughs) For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Ten days later, the guy was dead. Doesn't always happen that quick. God will take care of it. This time, Abigail got in the way of David's wrath. When Jesus was crucified, vengeance was being taken out on him. Did you know that? For me. For you. That's why Jesus died. He was bearing justice, vengeance. Vengeance will be done. It's got to be done. It's a necessity. Jesus said, I'll do it. I'll take everybody's. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will not let people get away with evil. If you have been harmed, justice will be done. But there is a flip side to that. God won't let you get away with your sin either. Justice will be done. And so as human beings, we have two options. We can let Jesus take our justice for us, which he's done on the cross, and then we're guilt-free. We get off scot-free. Or you can take it on yourself. By the way, that's why hell was made, for people who want to take it on themselves. You know, nobody's got to go there. You've got to volunteer to go to hell. You've got to want to go there by not asking Jesus to take your justice for you. There is a way to avoid God's judgment. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus wants to bring us to God. Have you been brought to God? Have you confessed your sins and said, Lord, I do believe in you. I believe you died for me and rose again, and I want to follow you. If you haven't done that, I urge you to do that. Become a follower of Jesus 
because the alternative is not worth it. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, help us to see things the way David saw them. Help us to see things the way you see them. Help us to understand that there's greater victory, greater strength, greater joy, and better living in not holding grudges and in passing vengeance to you. I pray for those who are going through something right now where a name has actually flashed in their mind in a face of somebody who's hurting them. I pray that you would bless them with deliverance from the need for vengeance, at least personal vengeance. And I pray you'd help them to release the weight that has been wearing them down. May they, in their mind's eye, just pass it to Jesus who's willing to carry it for them. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us and not holding it against us. And thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, once a month on Potluck Sunday, I like to meet with the men over here for just a couple minutes for man huddle. So if I can have you guys over here with me. All right, so this is just kind of like our guy time together. Um, I met with this man not too long ago. Very influential guy. He has spent time with senators, uh, ambassadors, heads of state. Very influential. And a bunch of senators asked him to speak to them one day. And he didn't have any notes in his pocket, but he knew what he wanted to talk about. He said, listen guys, in your positions of power and authority, you're going to be tripped up in one of three ways. He said, in fact, the three ways that I'm going to share with you are how all men get tripped up. He said, every man wrestles with one of three, with three of three things. Women, money, and pride. And he said, that's where your political career is going to be most threatened. They all knew names of men who fell because of women. They all knew names of men who fell because of money. And all of them struggled with pride because of their power and authority. So what I want to do today is this month, we're going to talk about women. Next month, money or pride, and then the following, the other. I uh, got a couple of quotes of scripture to help you out. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We may want to do what's right in our spirits, but our bodies are fighting against us. All right? So here's what I want you to do right now. Without telling them who you are, I just want you to look at all the guys. Hone in on one face. And I want you to pray for that person this week. That they'll be strong with God. That they will be able to resist temptation, not only with their hands, but with their hearts. All right? So pick a face. Hey, if you're extra spiritual, pick two or three faces. You know, take a picture. Pick the whole group. I don't care. Just pray for somebody this week that they'll be strong. Proverbs 5, listen to this, verses 3 through 8. The lips of an immoral woman may be as sweet as honey and as smooth as olive oil, but all you really get from being with her is bitter poison and pain. If you follow her, she will lead you to hell. She has missed the path that leads to life and doesn't even know it. My son, listen to me and do everything I say. Stay away from a bad woman. Don't even go near the door of her house. I could leave you with that, but that's kind of a downer. I want to leave you with something a little up. One of the famous poets, a Brown, I think was his name, 
Um, I got it written down elsewhere. I got his poem. He saw temptation not as something to stumble over, but something to kick its butt. To give you an opportunity to man up and sit over it going, yeah! Let me read to you what he said. Why comes temptation but for man to meet and master and to make crouch beneath his foot and so be pedestaled in triumph? So go out there. Don't be afraid of temptation. Be strong. Look it in the eye and kick its butt. Overcome and watch out for those immoral people. Put your hands in. Remember to pray for somebody this week. On the count of three, we're going to do Jesus, all right? One, two, three. Jesus! All right, go eat some pizza, guys.